CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And now, the list of things that you can buy at the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com. Things to wear like Chicago Reader hats, t-shirts, bandanas, and face masks. Things for your daily life like the Chicago Reader camping mug, Chicago Reader tote bags, and a Chicago Reader reporter's notebook. Things for you to read like our Reader recipes, the Chicago Reader 420 Companion, our Chicago Reader Best of book series from journalists Maya Dukmasova, Mike Sula, Ben Jarofsky, and Lior Galil, the Chicago Reader coloring book, and the Chicago Reader stay home puzzle. Find the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com and show your support for the nation's first free weekly news newspaper since 1971. Bonus time on the Ben Jarofsky Show. As I speak, it's Wednesday, June 14th, 2023. Uh, headlines in the newspaper proclaim it all. Trump's day in court. <laughs> That's the headline in the Sun. I should not laugh at Donald Trump's uh, problems. Uh, and then here's the headlines in the New York Times. Momentous scene in Miami as Trump pleads not guilty. I've been waiting for this conversation I'm about to have uh, with my distinguished guest for a long time. Uh, he's as obsessed about this case as I am. I think the only people not as obsessed as my distinguished guest and myself about this case uh, would probably be the prosecutor himself uh, and maybe Donald Trump. So distinguished guest. Oh, I got to throw Monroe Anderson in there. That guy is as obsessed about this stuff as the rest of us. Uh, distinguished guest, introduce yourself and away we shall go. Hey, Ben. Uh, I'm a Chicago area trial attorney. My name is Jim Coogan. I'm the principal attorney here at Coogan Gallagher, a law firm that is in lovely Park Ridge, Illinois. Uh, I love the lovely Park Ridge, Illinois. Yes, it is. Home of... God, now that I started this, the main South something or others um, who have one hell of a good football team, ladies and gentlemen, year in and year out. Uh, all right. Uh, let's not go a far field on a sports conversation. If Jim Coogan and I go down the path of the Chicago White Sox, we will never leave that path. So let's stick to Trump uh, and what's going on in Florida. Uh, there's so many just like general points. Uh, I want to talk to you about, and I will now give the uh, general topics so we don't forget any, okay? Uh, so I want to um, talk about the judge. I want to talk about the co-defendant. I want to talk about the choice of venue. Uh, I want to talk about what went down yesterday at the arraignment. But let's start with the actual charges uh, in case there's somebody listening who hasn't been paying attention, though I doubt that could possibly be so with my audience. Uh, but if they just need just sort of like a little A to Z primer, if you will, uh, Jim, so the general charges against Donald John Trump. Yeah, so 
in state or federal court, when a criminal or somebody is charged with criminal offenses, they have to be charged with specific violations of some statute. And the document that was unsealed at the end of last week in anticipation of Donald Trump uh, presenting himself for arraignment <clears throat> includes, this is, the, this is what was put together by Jack Smith, the um, special counsel that was appointed by the attorney general, has 37 criminal counts. The first, I think it's up to 31. Yeah. The first 31 counts all have to do with willful retention of national defense information. That's the, that's the actual title. And <clears throat> beyond that, the rest of them are, they're related. So count 32 is obstruct conspiracy to obstruct justice, which was, which is related to the intentional concealment of those documents, despite requests from the national archives, but then more pointedly the requests from the FBI uh, pursuant to a subpoena that was presented to Mr. Trump at his beach club in, in Florida count 32 withholding a document or record. And then this would be an example of the kind of thing where there may be multiple statutes that touch on the same concept. So obstruction conspiracy to obstruct is conspiring with other people to do a criminal act in this case to obstruct justice by withholding documentation. And then there's a specific statute that deals with withholding a document or record that is not Mr. Trump's to withhold. 34, again, similarity, corruptly concealing a document or record. 35, concealing a document in a federal investigation. So once there was a FBI grand jury that had been, or FBI investigation that had been begun, and then a criminal grand jury investigation, uh, you can't intentionally make false statements to that investigation in conjunction with, as we'll get into it, the specific request to turn documents over, and then they only turned over some of them. And then there's clear evidence outlined in this this uh, indictment that indicate that Mr. Trump continued to hide those documents and discuss his desire to withhold those documents. So that's number 35. Number 36, a scheme to conceal. Uh, it's kind of vaguely worded, but it gets the statute itself deals with the basically another way of saying conspiracy, that he's concocting a way to come to, to use resources, to use people, and to come together to not turn over things that he's supposed to be turning over. And then a more general false statements and excuse me, false statements and representations, which would include uh, directing his attorneys to make a statement to the government that they had done a diligent search of the grounds and turned over all the records that had been requested, which did happen. Those attorneys had their own jeopardy because of it. Obviously, you can get into the question of have they been lied to if they're basing it on information that's being given to them and they asked and their client just isn't telling them the truth. As I recall, not to get off on too much of a tangent, but when that information came out, it came to light that one of the lawyers edited that statement to say something about upon information and belief. In other words, I think he added a qualification in there because he knew that he was dealing with this client. I'm interpreting this, that he must have known dealing with this client that that information could be false and was trying to protect himself from his own federal charges, um, which another topic I suspect we'll discuss today, the mystifying phenomenon of other people going down for Donald Trump's crimes. I just, it's, there are people out there who, you know, maybe they have a good heart or 
you know, a, a co-conspirator thinks that they have a good heart and uh, they don't want to turn any information over on their behalf. They don't want to turn state's evidence. They don't want to cooperate. But boy, it's hard to understand why people would go to bat for someone like this who shows no reciprocal loyalty. Um, and I, I honestly spare thought for Waltine Nauda, who uh, is assigned to, to this guy and is now the second. He's one. Of, there's only two names on this this federal indictment, and he's one of the two. Um, and it, I mean, if, if the information is true, again, we're just taking it on its face, then he did make false statements that are going to put him in serious legal jeopardy. And you just kind of feel for why somebody in his position would do it for this person. And, and uh, a name from the past that you and I have talked about at length on many occasions, Michael Cohen, warned everybody, <laughs> do not go to bed with Donald Trump. You will regret it. And he did that from his own experience. He understood. He ended up in the federal penitentiary uh, because uh, he was doing Donald Trump's bidding. Uh, he described it in his book and in interviews um, it's like in a, what is it, an adoration that uh, someone has for Trump. They fall in love with the mystique. They fall in love with the persona. They fall in love with the TV star. And just the fact that he allows them in their presence, they feel better about themselves. That's how he, Michael Cohen, talked about it. I wouldn't be surprised uh, if Nauta, Waltine Nauta, who Trump's co-defendant, uh, felt the same way. He was uh, Trump's what they call uh, what do they call him body men. The people who are with Trump all the time as he goes from one city to the next. They carry his bags. They laugh at his jokes. Uh, they tell him yes, boss, uh, and they feel grateful that he allows them to uh, be in their presence and breathe the same air that they're breathing. We'll get into him uh, in a little bit. Um, I a uh, couple things I would love to get your thoughts on. I've opined uh, several times about motive, and I'd love to hear your thoughts about motive. Why would Donald Trump collect all these documents and then hold on to them after the feds let him know that they wanted him back and he wasn't supposed to have them in the first place? Uh, and he held out for so long. Uh, he brought this upon himself. It is clear that if he, even having taken them, which he probably knew he shouldn't have done in the first place, but having taken them, if he had just turned them over to the feds when they came a-calling, uh, he would not be in this predicament. So your thoughts on motive. So before I even talk about motive, I should say that part of what I think enables his motive with these things that Trump has done since he left the white house um, is the general idea, the general consistent persistent belief that none of it will ever catch up with him. I think that's, I mean, we have to put that in context because or in that context, because I think that that is in his experience, having been investigated for different, um, criminal actions for different civil cases, having been involved in endless civil litigation since the early 1980s. He has, the world has taught him that his arrogant belief that there will not be consequences no matter what he does is true. 
So I'm not, and I'm not excusing him or that belief. And I'm not saying it's a good thing. I think it's a bad thing. I think this is, this would be an example of a person with a high profile with a, a moderately large amount of wealth. You know, if you inherit $400 million from your dad, you're off to a good start. So whatever his real wealth is, which has always been, it's been a subject of debate um, in part because of the frustrating uh, fact that so many Americans took his wealth as a reason to believe he'd be a good president. Um, that wealth has also shielded him from consequences because he can play out the string in civil cases. He can, af- he can afford to squeeze smaller parties in civil cases because it's about money. And if they don't want to litigate forever and pay their lawyers, <clears throat> and he can afford to pay his more and decides, I would say pervertedly, that it's better to pay lawyers than pay contractors, then that's also been an experience that nothing ever touches him. So he believes that the world has taught him that it's okay and he's going to get away with it. And and then even worse, being president for four years and actually getting away with yeah. quite a few things that happened while he was in the office. Because again, we all, the people who are not deluded enough to, to tell themselves that there was nothing in the Mueller report, who actually listened to what Robert Mueller reluctantly admitted, which was he would have charged Donald Trump with crimes because he committed crimes, but he knew he couldn't. And it was, it was a very, that was, gosh, it was a very difficult thing to watch in general, but also because we know what the document actually showed, but, you know, in the right wing and in Trump's mind, it's all been a hoax, Russia, 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 lies, nothing ever proven. But that was the reason why he didn't get charged with those crimes. So then he's got this additional Yet another thing that's 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 shielding him from consequences and another mental, I don't know, just englazing it even further and and more more uh, emphatically in his mind that there will not be consequences no matter what laws I break. And he's looking around thinking rich guys get away with crimes in this country, so I should just continue to be one of those people. And I was the president, <clears throat> so after I get out of the office, there's never been a president that's been charged with crimes like this before. Not that there shouldn't have been, but he's old enough to remember the 1970s when Richard Nixon absolutely would have been charged with crimes. There's no reason to pardon him protectively by Gerald Ford if he wasn't going to be charged with crimes. And if you, I don't know if you listened to Rachel Maddow's tremendous podcast, Bagman, about the other half of that story, which was about Spiro Agnew, his vice president, was going to go to jail. But knowing that they were about to charge the president with crimes and that he was going to leave the office, they presented Agnew, Agnew with a deal that if he just resigned, they wouldn't prosecute him because they didn't want to have to deal with the situation where suddenly the president and vice president were going to jail and you have a constitutional crisis on your hands. So all of these things would enable Trump to believe that he could get away with it. Your question was about motive. He's an extraordinarily vain, arrogant strange person. These are my personal observations. Those aren't, I mean, these are opinions of mine, just looking at him as an outside observer. So there would be motivation to brag about the things that he has. You know, you know, imagine that guy out there who bought one of those paintings that was stolen from the Boston Museum back in the 1980s. It was that, that big heist that happened. They stole all these amazing, invaluable paintings. Some guy somewhere paid for that painting and he could only show it to certain people because it's illegally in his possession. Yeah. Well, this is the same general thing. This is, he could, hey, who else has a top secret war plan? Right. Who else has nuclear, I don't know if it's codes or plans or 
the, a diagram of locations or operational capacities. <clears throat> but who else has those things to show to his other rich guys that he wants to show these things off to? That would be the most exclusive thing you could you could show. Yeah. So there's that motivation. Presumably, there's also a negotiation motivation. Um, you and I think we even talked about this. It, he let he lets these things slip. So you, you know, unfortunately, you have to pay attention sometimes because it's very annoying to listen to him talk. But he let it slip that he remembers that the Nixon estate was ultimately paid money to settle a dispute over documents that his daughters in the library, well, I guess his daughters were like the heirs in the estate, but yes. his library held on to these things. And there was a fight with the federal government. And eventually after like 20 years, finally they got a little bit of money. He knows about that because he pointed it out in an interview. Yes. So, and he also has recently in some, I think it could have been Steve Bannon or it might've been somewhere else said something to the effect of, I might consider a plea if they paid me damages, which is, a very inventive notion of how criminal law is prosecuted. If you plea, you're, what you get in exchange for that is less time in jail than you might have if you were hit on all charges at trial and the judge gave you the full federal sentencing guidelines. But So there's the financial, I can negotiate or potentially negotiate less time by turning them over, which is, that is not a smart strategic thought. But I think that that's another thought. And then there's the darkest one, which is, either intentionally or potentially to share them with counterparties, bad actors, foreign nationals, and possibly enemies of the United States. Because there's, there's two ways to do it. You can give it to someone who's not necessarily enough of an enemy, but it's still secret information that that country might not otherwise have. Or you can give it straight to the Saudis or Vladimir Putin. And, you know, all we can do is connect the dots that we know publicly, but his son-in-law already got the, the biggest sweetheart deal of all sweetheart deals for investment companies with zero prior experience running a hedge fund slash investment fund and a $2 billion contribution from the Saudi wealth fund. That happened a while ago. You know, that's long in the works. <clears throat> and Trump was getting money from Live Golf, the Saudi golf venture already. They were planning on, and I think have already had events at his clubs. So there's the, that's the darkest and most serious one because as I've heard national security and attorney people talk about in uh, news programs over the past few couple weeks talking about this issue. Some of those things, I think even from this indictment, it's, it's not clear that everything has still been recovered. So whether he already showed it to someone or made a copy of it, there are also maybe documents that have not even been recovered. But the national security folks, the intelligence community, the Department of Defense, they may never know how much information got leaked in those ways shown to people, you know, you read a document to someone without actually turning it over to them. And now they know the details. Um, and who knows my, who might else have been involved in those things. Presumably it'd be a close circle, but there's lots of details that we don't know, but motivations I think span, it could be one or all of those things. And there's nothing about his character or his past behavior that would suggest to me that he wouldn't do all of those things. Yeah. Uh, I think, you you covered every single one, uh, and the, the, I'm glad you went on that Nixon riff. I too heard him babble on about Nixon, uh, and I went back and read up on the Nixon case, uh, and I could just tell you, I, I <laughs> I'm just convinced that in Donald Trump's mind, 
Someone told him about that Nixon case, which I think it went down in 20, in, in this century, the 21st century. So Nixon had been dead. It was a settlement between the federal government uh, and uh, the library, the Nixon library. You're right. I think it was $8 million. Don't quote me. I'm doing this off of memory. The point is, I could just see Trump's mind at work. If Nixon's library got $8 million 20 years ago, I could get $50 million, you know, and uh, just, all right. Utter insanity every step of the way. Uh, unbelievable arrogance, uh, audacity, etc., and so forth. Uh, now let's talk about the enablers. And we're uh, it drifts into a political conversation, uh, like a David Ferris conversation. But let's keep it with the legal as well. The enablers are pretty much uh, every elected official in the Republican Party not to mention the thousands and thousands of Republican voters, MAGA, uh, who are just sticking with Trump regardless and have done a counterattack against the Justice Department. And uh, we were talking about this earlier today with Monroe Anderson. Congressman Jim Jordan in Ohio has pledged to investigate the investigators. Uh, uh, J.D. Senator Vance of Ohio uh, has pledged uh, that he will do everything he can to sabotage the Merrick Garland Justice Administration. Uh, Kevin McCarthy called it the Speaker of the House a sad day for American justice. The notion, Jim, is that if a candidate who is running for president against the incumbent candidate uh, is charged with a crime that's overreach. Uh, and so, therefore, by their argument and their logic, uh, a Justice Department that's overseen by President Biden cannot prosecute Donald Trump because he is the leading candidate uh, from the Republican Party to be uh, to run against him. I find that absolutely preposterous uh, as a logical statement. Is there anything remotely legal about it no i mean i've heard that too it disturbs me because i know it's going to be repeated over and over it's it's not first of all let's just clear all clear the decks there is nothing in any criminal law that says because someone is a candidate for office whether it's the president or local dog catcher that you can't be prosecuted for crimes period even the Department of Justice uh, Office of Legal Counsel memo that I was re referring to earlier that was one of the bases, or apparently the, maybe the only basis, that Donald Trump wasn't charged with crimes while he was in office, is a, is a guideline. It, it's, it's a guideline that has a lot of logic behind it because the Department of Justice has got a lot of competing interests if suddenly their boss has committed a crime and they have to do something about it. That's really complicated. But beyond that, think about it. I mean, let's, let's, let's play that thought experiment out. Does someone who's charged with any crime whatsoever by the federal government, can they declare themselves as a candidate or declare themselves as a candidate and go commit the crime and say, well, you know, Joe Biden knows I'm a rival. So uh, that means it's improper for them to prosecute me. But let's take it a step further. What I heard when I... God help me, I did try to listen to some of the commentary on Fox News in the day after this was coming out. Yeah. Uh, I think it was Friday afternoon last week. 
I wanted to hear what they were saying and try to get a sense of, you know, sometimes they just, they're, they start covering, you know, homeless crisis or, or fentanyl or something like that to just distract completely from real news. But here they were actually talking about this issue. And that was one of the lines. But if you think about it, um, not only would that never be a reason why someone couldn't create a full, like a, a full non-legal defense for themselves and a get out of jail free card, but do they remember what the results were of the 2020 election? Yeah. You know, other than the electoral college, it was a blowout. And even with the electoral college, other than the fact that the states like Georgia and Arizona were very, very close, it was still a blowout. Joe Biden won that election very convincingly. And, of you know, the irony of all ironies was that um, one of the reasons why I believe that the the prosecutor in Georgia is going to be able to prove intent on the president and former president's part when Fonnie Willis gets around to probably filing her charges against him for electoral fraud and trying to illegally interfere with the process in Georgia is he had a group. He hired somebody. His people hired a group to see if there was anything to these nonsensical fraud claims that they were making. And according to the reports I read, his own, uh, at the time, I guess he was the, the chief of staff, Mark Meadows, yeah. was consistently texting these people and asking more questions about some other cockamamie theory that they had about fraud, about you know machines that were being controlled from Italy or whatever other nonsense. And they checked it all out. And they told the president, because he was still president, that none of this is real. We can't prove any of it. Any quote-unquote fraud amounts to the same kind of fraud that we see in every election, which might be 15 people in the whole country who intentionally went and either voted when they shouldn't have voted or voted for their dead spouse or voted in the wrong district. And again, even in those cases, you have to prove intent. You know, Florida had that disgusting thing where they basically tricked people who had been granted their ability to vote again after being in jail for a felony and then went after them for voter fraud because they gave them the impression that they were able to vote again, then decided that they probably shouldn't have. Um, So he knew that there wasn't any fraud to any of that. So there's no, it's the same general concept. In other words, like that, that there, he, would have known that that wasn't happening in that case. And to answer this question, he had to have known, or his people who are advocating now also know how ridiculous it sounds to say that Joe Biden would have to go to the length of prosecuting him to eliminate a rival. If I was Joe Biden, I'd rather run against Donald Trump than anybody else. (laughs) He's already beaten him. And this is very simple politics, you know, like take all the complication. We all got very confused after the, black swan event of 2016 but politics is really simple stuff and no matter how low joe biden's approval ratings might be his presidency has been generally very successful he's passed the things that he's wanted to pass inflation is now starting to die down and we all know that it was a product of a very unusual coronavirus event and you know shortening up supply chains and messing around with supply and demand in the labor market and so on so there's no reason why a, a person in Joe Biden's position would be concerned about Donald Trump. If anything, his biggest weakness is his age, and Donald Trump is 75 years old. So, Seven. To, okay, there you go. You just, today's his birthday, today's, by the way. You know what? I apologize. I should have known. Today is actually his his birthday is the same day as Flag Day. So you're right. Yeah. Um, 
but that's, you know, so even, even there, it, it's nonsensical to suggest that this would be something that he would do just to eliminate a political rival. Uh, yet uh, many prominent Republicans uh, are, are saying that. So just keep that in mind when you think about how insane these times are. All right, let's get into some of the particulars of this case. Uh, let's start with uh, venue and judge. Uh, the decision by the uh, prosecutor, uh, Jack Smith, to file in Florida as opposed to Washington, D.C., has resulted in a situation uh, where they wound up with Judge Cannon uh, to oversee the proceedings. Why don't you talk about uh, both issues, tie them together. Venue, that is where the charger filed, uh, and what impact... Uh, Judge Cannon could have on this proceedings uh, if she shows an abiding adoration for Donald Trump. Go ahead. Yeah, I'm, I know that this has been very concerning for watchers of the justice system and folks who are hoping that this justice system gets it right since this is such a fraught situation. Um, we all got introduced to Eileen Cannon a few months ago or a year or so ago when in the response to the request to turn over documents, she interjected something we have, you know, that it's been covered extensively that, and actually affirmed by the 11th Circuit that her interpretation of the criminal code and criminal procedure was completely false. So this is a judge who had previously worked in private practice, worked for the Department of Justice for a bit, and then was appointed as a federal judge in Florida by Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. When Donald Trump's lawyers tried to intervene and interfere and avoid having to uh, participate and turn over documents in the process of this grand jury investigation, she went way beyond the criminal code and the criminal statutes or anything that happens normally in criminal procedure and granted their request to appoint a special master to review all the documents. Uh, Judge Deary, if I recall, was the one that they tapped for this but to review the documents to determine whether or not they were protected by some privilege or should not have been the subject of, you know, were personal documents and therefore weren't properly being uh, demanded by the government. Um, to the, so in the appellate system in the federal courts, it goes up to appellate panel of three judges. I think two of those judges were Republicans. It was a unanimous decision that basically it, it stripped her bare. I mean, it, it, it basically pointed out that this is, Criminal defendants have rights, and they can object if the government is improperly seizing documents. But those rights are very clear under the Fourth and Fifth Amendments as to what you have to turn over, what you need to say, what you don't need to say. And if something was illegally seized, your remedy is to go into court and say, Judge, all this evidence should be thrown out, and it shouldn't be brought before the, the jury in this case. And with, and then you can take it the next step and say, and without that evidence, they can't prove the case against my client, so the whole thing needs to be dismissed. This whole special master thing was nonsense. The appellate court confirmed that it was all nonsense. Like I said, two Republicans. So to the extent that anybody worries about this being a partisan thing, it wasn't. And they were right. That's the law. So this is a it's a concern that this Judge Cannon would be biased in favor of Donald Trump because she, he gave her her job, because she was already very enraptured with him in the first place. Maybe that's how she got on his radar. I don't know the personal connections between them. But because of the way cases get assigned in federal districts, this one got assigned to her. So 
Jack Smith had a decision to make when he filed this indictment as to which district he would file it in. The reasons why he filed it in Florida are probably mostly based upon expeditiously moving the case forward. Because had he filed it in New Jersey, because I know that at least one of these conversations that Donald Trump was on tape here was at his Bedminster golf course mm-hmm. or in Washington, D.C., there would have been pre-trial procedural yeah. fights over whether the case should proceed in those places. Donald Trump is also a, a resident of his Mar-a-Lago club in Florida now. And so that might have been their argument that he deserves to defend the case where he is and shouldn't have to go where the government tells him to. Um, and so in order to make this case move quickly, for obvious reasons, it's in the national interests and the Department of Justice interests to get the case over as if possible before the 2024 election, if he remains the candidate in this race. Um, I suspect that that was his driving motivation. All right. So uh, you are by uh, occupation, a trial attorney. Uh, that means you uh, argue cases in front of a jury uh, and you have to deal with judges. So put on your trial attorney hat for a moment. Think about all the different ways a biased judge could screw up your case. Uh, I, I, I'm my my uh, chief venue of preoccupation uh, is a basketball arena, uh, and I watched the um, Netflix documentary about the corrupt NBA official. I don't know if you saw it; it's an excellent documentary. I urge everybody to watch. Yes, yes, very good. Yes, good for knowing that. Uh, and in that movie, in that show, in that documentary, excuse me, they point out all the different ways a corrupt referee can influence a game. And there are a lot. I won't burden our listeners with the, a recitation, Jim, but there are a lot. Now, go to the courtroom. How could potentially a biased judge use the proceedings to favor Donald Trump? So there will be pretrial motions that are filed. The, the Trump defense attorneys will argue about evidence, just like we alluded to a moment ago. Um, she could make rulings that these things were improperly seized, that the procedures that the FBI went through in order to subpoena information, in order to, at the point that they ran out of options, when they arrived at Mar-a-Lago with a search warrant and executed that search warrant, uh, that that was improper, that they didn't have a, a proper basis for it. I mean, the search warrant was signed off on um, by a magistrate judge. I think it would be difficult to look at, look into, into the particulars of that and find that there was some failure to justify it. But those are all the things pre-trial that uh, it, essentially related to the evidence itself whether statements, information, documents, whatever was seized, whatever the evidence is of these crimes, wasn't properly collected. Excluding any of that evidence would be the first problem. The good thing is those rulings could be appealed before jeopardy attaches. So that, I think, is something that can be dealt with as a procedural issue and not tank the entire case and make it so that uh, it eliminates the possibility of prosecution. The more concerning part of the case would be during the trial itself, that once jeopardy attaches to a criminal defendant, as people know, the concept of there's no double jeopardy in the United States, you know, it's one of those things that that gets out there in the the common understanding of criminal law, even if people aren't legal nerds or or lawyers, 
Um, <clears throat> that's that's where things get a little hairier. That once the trial begins, once the jury's impaneled, uh, that rulings that she makes could lead to some kind of a mistrial or excluding evidence improperly. The prosecutors don't get to appeal those things. You know, if they lose the case and the and the defendant is acquitted, that's it. Yeah. So the other ways that you might be concerned about this at trial might have to do with just simple evidentiary rulings at trial. I mean, once things are allowed to be, you know, once those motions to exclude evidence are either granted or denied and they've narrowed down what things the prosecution is allowed to use, you still have to go through actually putting the case on, which means putting witnesses up on the stand, laying a foundation for, okay, what's your name? What, where were you? And what is this document? Where did you see this before? Were you the one who moved this from a, one room to the other because you were doing some kind of Benny Hill routine to hide these documents, not only from the feds, but also from Donald Trump's other lawyers? Um, they have to establish these things. So there could be you know, bad rulings on those evidentiary issues during the course of a trial that might hamstring the prosecution and make it more difficult for them to be able to put their case on. Um, there could be problems, I guess I'm backtracking a little bit, but even in the jury selection process. Uh, uh, jurors are selected, but I people use the word jury selection. The way I explain it to clients, though, is it's really more of a deselection process. You have a string of jurors, whether there's 100 or 150 of them or whatever number they might need for such a high-profile case, and you go through them, you try to figure out who is biased, and some jurors can be struck because they're biased for cause, meaning that the judge says, yes, I agree. That person said, I hate Donald Trump so much that it could never be fair. They don't belong here. I'm removing them because they should be, they should not be here. But for somebody who says, well, you know, I watch MSNBC and I read the New York times, but I would absolutely be fair. I believe in the justice system. I believe that every defendant deserves to defend themselves. They're not going to get struck for cause. But they, so that requires the side who doesn't want them to be there, they can use what they call a peremptory challenge to knock that person off the list. So if you're the prosecution and there's a juror who should be struck for cause and the judge refuses to do it, now you've got to exercise one of your peremptories, each side gets a limited number of those challenges. So a way that a trial judge who has their thumb on the scale could influence that is by refusing to grant cause challenges when they should, which requires the side trying to remove that juror to expend one of their bullets, and then they run out more quickly. And now a person who is borderline, who's further down the list, who shouldn't be there, the judge isn't going to remove them for cause. They have no more peremptory challenges. Now that person's on the jury. And can that be appealed? Nope. I mean, not, so in any, not in any meaningful way, not in any way that would actually help. I mean, the, the, I don't even know if there's a, a, a procedure to appeal that, but... Yeah. It's happening in the moment, and you'd have to demonstrate some extraordinary bias. And I, I think the other problem is you might have to stop the jury selection process to do some sort of interlocutory appeal. This is getting a little, you know, procedurally weird, but I, it's just, I don't think that ever really would happen. Okay. Well, I could, let's put it this way. If Judge Cannon, uh, if someone, <laughs> let's use an instance on the other side, uh, Someone got up and goes, I was at January 6th. I didn't go into the Capitol, but I was uh, at the, the rally, and I love Donnie Trump tremendously, and I don't believe he could, it's possible that he could ever do anything wrong. And 
the uh, <laughs> Jack Smith said, oh, my God, you got to kick him off the jury for cause. And Judge Cannon said, no, I think this person could be a reasonable juror. I mean, you know what I'm saying, Jim? I, <laughs> I mean, if it were that blatant, I suppose there there may be, you know, I, I haven't prosecuted a federal case for a, in a criminal case. There may be a procedure for that. Yeah. But I don't, the problem is you don't want to have to resort to that. I mean, yeah. if you're if you're at that point, you're already in serious problem or having serious problems with effectively prosecuting the case. Yeah. Um, all right. So uh, I, everybody will be watching Judge Cannon. Uh, all eyes will be on her in a way that I've. I you don't have to go back to Lance Ito, uh, who is the judge in the O.J. Simpson trial, uh, to find a judge who's under as much scrutiny as this judge will be under. So, uh, to your first point, I think uh, you're probably right that the prosecutors got together and just said, eh, "We're just going to take our chances because uh, if we were to try to get this tried somewhere else." as you pointed out, like in New Jersey or Washington, D.C., that would just be an automatic uh, challenge, and then there would be uh, arguing back and forth. All right, uh, so that's the setup from the judge. All eyes will be on the judge. We'll see what her, some of her earlier rulings are uh, to see how fair she is. Then there's the issue of the, the co-defendant, uh, Walt Nada, Waltine Nada, the valet, uh, who, according to the indictment, uh, followed uh, Trump's command to move boxes around and try to keep them from uh, the side of the feds. I got to think there's going to be pressure on him uh, to turn state's evidence. Your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, it's 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 a it's sort of a question that answers itself. He's charged with some of these crimes, but not all of them. Uh, and he isn't the target at the end of the day. He's somebody who took orders and did these things, but he did them at, for the benefit of Donald Trump yeah. or for his benefit. What was he going to get out of it? Continued employment, I guess, but that's it. Um, <clears throat> so there's really no motivation for him not to assist the prosecution, presuming that they offer him a deal that is somewhat favorable to him. Um, and I, I have to imagine that that would be their priority because it's not worth it to them to hold out for some heavy sentence for Walt Nauda. It, it just, uh, so they, I, those conversations must have already begun. I don't know how much he knew about whether he was being charged before the indictment was unsealed. You know, sometimes those conversations can happen behind the scenes with attorneys even before the, the indictment has been un, uh, revealed to the public, but he certainly knows now. And hopefully there's a way that he has access to good defense counsel, but I, I would, I, I, it would be difficult to imagine why he would not cooperate with the prosecutors. Well, this was gets where it gets really strange. Uh, he, he was president at the, yesterday's arraignment where Trump pled uh, not guilty but he himself was not arraigned because he did not have a local lawyer. He still does not have a lawyer, which, I, and let's follow, he drove to court with Trump and then left court with Trump, uh, went with Trump to a, a restaurant in Miami where they had sort of the uh, 
celebratory trash talking that Donald Trump loves to engage in. I, I'm like watching this going, I've never seen anything like this where the co-defendants are allowed to hang out with each other. Um, you, you know what I mean? Once the clock's ticking, aren't, aren't they supposed to be separated and kept apart? He doesn't even have a lawyer yet, Jim. Well, you know, it, they, <laughs> there's no rule preventing it. If they were each in custody, they could have them in separate cells or have them in interviewed in separate interview rooms to try to see if they could play them off against each other. That's a, <laughs> yeah. that's a police tactic that they use sometimes. Yeah. In this situation, I guess one way to interpret this is that he's still enthralled and doesn't get it yet. Still believes in the phony notion that Trump will save him. I suspect that he's trying to convince him to hold, to hang tight, not to be, you know, to use Trump terminology, not to be a rat uh, because he fancies himself as a mob boss. And uh, he's, I think he, I've heard quotes of, of the former president before saying that that, that ought to be illegal, cooperating with, with the prosecutors ought to be illegal, which is so twisted. You just have to marvel at, <laughs> at, the, at the thought yeah. process that goes into that. But yeah, I mean, he's probably dangling him, you know, I'll, I'll pay for your defense. I'll help you. Um, I will be, you know, I'm not going to turn on you. I can't, I won't sell you out, which is really not much of a statement because I wouldn't believe him if he said it. And now does not the target. So the feds wouldn't care if he wanted to blame everything on, on a, a person who he directed to help him commit these crimes. So, yeah, I mean, I, I feel, I feel bad for the guy at this point. Uh, and maybe he'd be offended by anybody saying that about him, but I don't, I don't know what else he must be thinking, how this is going to play out. So well, it, the charges are out there. It's not, this is no longer a theoretical possibility. Yeah. And I can't understand how anybody would think that maybe they're not serious about this or maybe they won't go through with it. I mean, it's, it's out there. It's happening. This is now well, reality. I'll throw out another possibility and uh, I'll start by saying uh, this is a product of a mind that's watched maybe too many legal thrillers uh, on, in movies or on TV and definitely have read too many uh, legal novels you know, obsessed with this stuff. Uh, there's also the possibility he's already wearing the wire. Yeah. That's a great point. I mean, I, um, I guess there was a direction by the magistrate judge that they not talk to each other directly at the hearing, but I, yeah. apparently that's already being ignored. It would appear. Um, but you're right. And frankly, if that's what's happening, then good for him and good for the prosecutors <laughs> because, you know that the guy, Mr. Trump, cannot help himself. Yeah. He, it's almost as if sometimes he commits these crimes in order to brag about them because yeah. that seems to be one of his primary motivations in life, like you said, is the trash talking. Yeah. And listen, I, I've spent too much time watching uh, the Michael Madigan case uh, and the Ed Burke case uh, where they, uh, most, most, some of the evidence was gathered uh, by Alderman Danny's, former Alderman Danny Solis, who was wearing a wire and engaging the Madigan and Burke in conversations. Uh, but all I know is that the, uh, the, the prosecutor was very lenient in terms of the terms imposed on the defendants 
and how they interact. It was the judge, the magistrate, as you pointed out, who wanted tougher language. Uh, and Trump's lawyer objected, saying uh, Trump has to talk to uh, his co-defendant, and he has to talk to some of the other witnesses because they still work for him. Uh, and the, the judge bought that. The magistrate bought that. The prosecutor didn't object. And then the judge's um, only command was that they not talk about the case. Jim, they left the court together. They got in a car and drove to uh, a celebratory trash-talking session as I had a Cuban restaurant in Miami. There is no way they did not talk about the case in that limo. I, <laughs> it's, it's Donald Trump. You know what I'm saying? I don't. I, I can't disagree with you, and I don't. Yeah. I, can't, I imagine. I mean, you have to be. I, you have to be right. That has to be what happened. Uh, for, for and I wouldn't say for better or worse. It's only for worse. Yes. No, uh, unless again, unless he's actually somehow tricked everybody and he is cooperating already. I guess. Yes. I I don't. I couldn't rule that out either. Jim Coogan doesn't watch as many TV uh, law thrillers as I do, but he actually does law. Uh, and you live in Chicago or the Chicago area, Jim. So you re you read about Danny Solis as well. Um, that's what I thought. When I, when the prosecutor didn't object to them uh, talking to one another, I'm like, hmm, that's interesting. Uh, we'll see. We shall see. I may have been hanging around Chicago politics for too long. All right. Final question is this. Uh, you mentioned uh, jury selection. Is there any possibility that Donald Trump would ask for a bench trial? and have the no jury and put his fate in the hands of Judge Cannon? There is a possibility. I think that it is going to be his right to waive a jury trial, and I think it's exclusively the, the defendant's right. So that is a possibility, knowing that he's got this, uh, what I'm sure he interprets as loyalty from Judge Cannon. Um, it's an interesting question, because there are other procedural things that come into play if it is a bench trial versus a jury trial. Um, with jury trials, the other reason why defendants may prefer them is because there is more of a possibility for some unusual thing to happen for a mistrial that goes in their favor, uh, just because juries are much messier. The selection mm -hmm. process, the evidence, the evidence process is much more complicated. And with judges, you don't have to spend nearly as much time worrying about what's admissible or not because they already know about all the evidence. They're the ones deciding yeah. whether it's relevant and admissible. So in other words, if you have a thing that one side doesn't believe the jury should see, you show it to the judge. And then the argument is, well, Your Honor, we object. We think that that's improper. It's not relevant evidence, whatever the argument is. And then the judge makes a decision. And then it's either shown to the jury or it's not. Mm -hmm. Bench trials, it's not an issue. So a lot of the appellate issues that you have from criminal jury trials or from criminal trials is the product of something that should should or should not have been admitted into evidence and therefore the jury shouldn't have been relying upon it. So I think that criminal defense attorneys often counsel their clients that it's not in your favor to have a bench trial except in, and I'm talking more local things now, you can curry some favor with the judge by not insisting on a bench or a jury because 
it's more complicated. It's more work for the judge. Bench trials, they can actually do in piecemeal sometimes because you sit a jury, you got to finish with that jury in, in whatever linear time space you have over a week or two weeks or a month, even if there's days off. But a bench trial can be continued for a month while the ju- judge works on other things. So judges like that mm. if that's how their system works. I know that's how it works and it can work in Cook County, for example. So it's there are reasons that mitigate against it. But knowing what he knows about this judge, I'm sure it's a discussion that they're having that it might be it is it might be worth trying that. Uh if and if he goes to the <laughs> you know, if he goes to the bench trial, everyone will think the fix is in. I mean, every Democrat will think the fix is in uh, if he goes for the bench trial. Uh, I'll close by on a lighter note, uh, since we're talking so much about uh, trials and juries, etc. I don't know if you've seen the show Jury Duty, uh, but I urge you to watch it. It's hilarious. It's um, a comedy that I believe is on Prime. So all our listeners as well. Uh, it's a mock trial and uh, tells the story of the, jur- the jurors. Uh, it's, it's like, it's made by the same, uh, the producer, the director, the creator is, uh, one of the people who worked on the office. Uh, and it has a lot of the style of the office, uh, and also the documentary best in show. I don't know if you ever saw that. It's pretty funny about, uh, people who love dogs and it's pretty funny, Jim. So I'd love to get your thoughts on jury duty. Uh, it's again, like I said, it's on prime, make us laugh, uh, in these uh, gloomy times. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you, Jim. Outstanding work as always. And uh, we're going to have a, we're going to make, put you to work a lot in the coming. uh, I'm just thinking of this through in the coming weeks. Not only do we have this case, uh, we got the uh, case in New York uh, with uh, the hush money to Stormy Daniels. Uh, Jack Smith is also overseeing the prosecution, Trump's connection to January 6th. And then you just, you alluded to it earlier, the Georgia case. Uh, and <laughs> so he'll be facing four trials. And it's, I don't know if you saw this, uh, the E. Jean Carroll case, E. Jean Carroll uh, was granted the go-ahead uh, to file new charges and seek more damages from Trump because he just continues to malign her. So, um, Yeah. Uh, so, uh, we'll, uh, have a lot of conversation ahead of us. So, uh, thanks again, Jim. Appreciate you coming on the show. It's my pleasure, Ben. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, that is, uh, the great Jim Coogan and I am Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everybody. Bye.